Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and we are joined today by Adam Gentleson, who's Public Affairs Director at Democracy Forward. Prior to joining Democracy Forward, he was Deputy Chief of Staff to Senate Democratic Leader Harry Reid of Nevada uh, and became in this job very steeped in the ways of the Senate. This has led to a new book, brilliantly timed, called Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy uh, from W.W. Norton, a book that has gotten terrific reviews. Congratulations on the book, Adam. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, I'm glad to have you for the book. Uh, I have followed many of your wise comments on Twitter for a long time. Uh, And uh, uh, frankly, I'm also glad to have you because you're a kindred spirit on views towards uh, the kind of reforms the Senate needs. Uh, And maybe we can start with that and the book in one swoop and say, why did you spend the past couple of years writing this book? Well, you know, I think what, what motivated me to do it, I, I talk about this in the book, it, it opens with this this episode. Um, it, th- I think the turning point for me was the mansion to me background checks uh, debate and defeat in 2013. Um, and the reason that was a turning point for me, so just, just to, you know, recall for folks, this was uh, a few months in the wake of the Newtown massacre, um, which occurred in December of 2012. Um, so then in April of 2013, um, uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Toomey of Pennsylvania uh, brought forward a bill um, in response to this massacre to implement universal background checks. Uh, and they sort of did everything that you're supposed to do if the system is working correctly. These were two senators who couldn't have been more different. Uh, and Joe Manchin, sort of rough edge populist from West Virginia, Pat Toomey, the country club Republican from Pennsylvania. Um, they got a, they you know, brought forth a bill that was a moderate policy solution uh, polling at the time north of 90% uh, in terms of public support, um, you know, basically universal public support. Um, and they, they got the support of 55 senators, a bipartisan group, Democrats and Republicans. Um, but the bill failed uh, because it was subject to a filibuster. And uh, this wasn't the filibuster of popular imagination. This wasn't the filibuster of Jimmy Stewart on the floor. This wasn't the filibuster that I had come to expect when I arrived in the Senate. Um, there was nobody on the floor. Um, you know, the bill was on the floor for about a week. And over the course of this time, um, its opponents barely spoke. Um, Senator Mitch McConnell, who was the leading the opposition, spoke on this topic for a grand total of two minutes over the course of a week. He took more time to acknowledge the, le- the legacy of Margaret Thatcher and uh, put forward a resolution celebrating the Louisville men's basketball team's uh, victory in March Madness than he did to discuss the contents of this bill. Um, but they were still, despite the fact that they weren't actually on the floor filibustering, they were able to use 
this new modern version of the filibuster, sort of a stealth filibuster, to, without even debating, raise the threshold of passage for this amendment, uh, for this bill, from the majority support, where technically it still is today, um, but they were able to place a procedural hurdle in the way of it that required 60 votes to clear. The bill couldn't get quite 60 votes, it had 55, and it died. Um, so the reason this was a turning point for me and led to the writing of this book was that, you know, you're taught that the Senate is the more deliberative chamber, you know, it's the cooling saucer, supposedly, in contrast to the House. Um, but there's supposed to be wisdom in that deliberation. There's supposed to be wisdom in that delay. Uh, but what I saw when I was there was there was no wisdom. There was only gridlock uh, and narrow partisan objectives. And you ask around and you sort of try to get answers to why is it this way? And you hear a lot of sort of circular answers about this is the way that the Senate has decided to be. This is the result of decades of wisdom of, of the ages, you know, sort of making it this way. But when you dig deeper, as I try to do in the book, you start to find that a lot of that is uh, self-serving, um, myth-making that isn't really true. And it, in fact, it is the result of sort of narrow partisan power plays over the course of several centuries. Um, you know, I, I tell, try to tell the story of a lot of the people who made those power plays and what their motivations were, um, but there's no reason it has to be this way. Uh, and I think that uh, what I try to convey in the book is how we got here and also um, some, some optimistic ways that we can, we can try to make it different and try to go back to what the Senate was supposed to be what we're taught it is, which is a chamber that is actually deliberative, that actually uh, is produces thoughtful policy solutions to the big challenges we face today, instead of just a place where good ideas go to die, which is what it's become today. Right. So the world's greatest deliberative body has gone to be the world's greatest obstructive body. Right. Um, but I guess the question, when you rightly raise the myth-making, is was it ever the world's greatest deliberative body? Yeah, well, you know, like like many things in our country, that there are deep uh, flaws that that often tend to stem from racism and um, you know major shortcomings. And no one would ever argue that the Senate was ever perfect or or even a fair institution. Um, it's very nature and having equal representation uh, have some a lot of built in unfairness that that flows downward. Um, Ironically, as I lay out the book, James Madison was opposed to this idea of equal representation. So he called it an injustice then. Um, and that was at a time when the biggest state was Virginia. It was 10 times bigger than Delaware. So if he thought it was an injustice then, giving those two states the same number of senators, he would certainly think it's injustice now when California, with its 39 million people, is 70 times bigger than Wyoming with its 600,000 people. So, you know, the Senate is not a perfect institution. I don't want to be too rose-colored about its history. Um, certainly on civil rights, it was it's always been terrible. Um, you know, we celebrate the passage of the Civil Rights Bill in 1964, but uh, the Senate is the only reason that civil rights bills didn't pass for the 87 years prior, because civil rights bills were passing the House by wide margins. Uh, they had presidents of both parties in the White House ready to sign them. The public supported uh, anti-lynching laws. The public supported laws to end poll taxes. Uh, when Gallup polled anti-lynching laws in 1937, they found 72% public support. When they pulled, pulled when they pulled on anti-poll taxing laws, they found north of 60% support. So you know the Senate has always been problematic to say the least. Um, but on other issues, it was able to uh, deliberate and, and arrive at thoughtful policy solutions. You know, during that that 
post-war period, um, the Senate uh, helped you know uh, build the middle class. It helped uh, uh, develop the interstate highway system. It helped um, you know do the GI Bill. Many of the things that have have made us into the country we are today. Um, the problem is what, what's happened since then is we've we've gone in the direction of how the Senate treated civil rights and started applying the, the 60 vote threshold, the supermajority threshold that the Senate applied to civil rights only during the Jim Crow period. And we started applying that to every other issue. So instead of you know still being able to thoughtfully deliberate on issues and pass on a majority vote basis, uh, we've gone in the other direction. Um, and so I think what we can do is try to recapture uh, some of its deliberative nature, some of its valuable protections for minorities, but but remake but make it once again a place where things actually do get passed instead of just running into constant gridlock. So you 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 just talked about the central role that civil rights issues played uh, in 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 the uh, path to where we've gotten today. Uh, one might characterize that as the central role that institutional racism has played. Um, and that's particularly true in the case of the filibuster, um, which, as you describe it in the book, um, begins with one of the uh, great voices of institutional racism in U.S. history, John C. Calhoun, and continues through to be a tool used, uh, I think you asserted in the book, almost exclusively in its first century or so of use for anti-civil rights um, purposes. And as you look at the sort of the agenda of the Republican Party today uh, on, on certain issues like voter suppression, but on a wider variety of issues than that, this still seems to be at the center of it. To what extent is institutional racism the, the, the real father of the filibuster? I think to a great extent. Um... You know, the reason it came into being in the beginning uh, was the need to protect the slave power and slaveholders um, from the march of progress. And I, I want to be clear that, you know, historians disagree about when the when the first real filibuster was. It's, it's a sort of categorization challenge because no one called it a filibuster at the time. This name didn't exist. Um, and, you know, when did an obstructive tactic qualify as a filibuster is a topic of great debate among historians, but um, a key distinction is the use of the obstructive tactic married to this principle of minority rights. Um, obviously the principle of minority rights did not start with John Calhoun. Um, this is something that was very important to the founders um, and Madison talks about it a lot. Um, what Calhoun did was he took the Madisonian principle of minority protections uh, and ensuring that the minority would have a process and a voice and a role in the legislative process. And Madison inflated that, I'm sorry, Calhoun inflated that to uh, be into the idea that the minority deserved the right to exercise a veto over everything that the majority wanted to do. And you ask about the role of institutional racism, it was explicitly for the purpose of protecting the slave power that Calhoun sought to inflate minority protections to that great degree. Um, you know, at, in the 1830s, when he arrives in the Senate, it's very clear that the march of history is headed in a certain direction. This isn't to say America was, you know, enlightened and everybody was was uh, post-racial, because it certainly wasn't the case. But for a variety of reasons, uh, abolitionism was getting traction. 
Um, the Northern economic model was proving superior to the Southern model. And it was clear that left to its current trajectory, slavery was gonna be, start to be you know, done away with. And so Calhoun found himself representing the minority in this issue. And what he needed to do was increase the power of that numerical minority. Um, and that's what led him to innovate what we would now describe as a modern filibuster, marrying the use of obstructive tactics in the name of minority rights. And so that is where you can credit Calhoun as being the first. Um, and then, you know, what what's the, the big change that came in the 20th century, um, also motivated by racism, was taking Calhoun's tactics. Uh, and what Calhoun innovated was basically what we would think of as the talking filibuster of going to the floor and, you know, speak, speaking for a long time, sort of Jimmy Stewart style, to delay a bill. Um, that was the best he could do at the time because there was no way to implement a supermajority threshold. There simply wasn't any supermajority threshold on the Senate rule books, except for the narrow cases prescribed by the Constitution for things like removal from office and, and treaties and constitutional amendments. Um, so Calhoun, you know, did increase the power of the minority to block and delay in, in innovating this new thing that soon came to be called the filibuster. Um, and that was a big achievement. That was much more power than the minority used to have. Um, but it wasn't until the Jim Crow era that senators actually began to be able to use the filibuster in an even more powerful way to actually stop bills altogether. Um, and this was the innovation of the Jim Crow era white supremacists, um, self-avowed white supremacists, who explicitly were innovating this tactic, this strengthening of the filibuster for the sole purpose of blocking civil rights bills. What's important to understand, and I mentioned this earlier, was that once again, they found themselves sort of staring down the barrel of a gun of progress. It was a mixed metaphor, but you know, they, it was clear that progress was, was headed uh, in the direction of civil rights. Um, civil rights bills were passing the House on a consistent basis every couple of years by massive margins and arriving in the Senate. And these were anti-lynching bills. These were anti-poll tax bills. There were anti-workplace discrimination bills starting under Roosevelt and Truman. Um, and when they arrived in the Senate, they appeared to have majority support. And at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, you had presidents ready to sign them. So the only thing that was going to be able to stop these bills from becoming law, and I'm talking about anti-lynching bills that could have been law in the 1920s, uh, and anti-poll tax bills, the, actually anti-poll tax bills could have been law in the, as early as 1891, when a filibuster blocked a bill by uh, sponsored by Henry Cabot Lodge to uh, enact federal uh, penalties for poll taxes. Um, the only thing stopping these bills from becoming law decades earlier than we actually started enacting civil rights protections was the Senate filibuster. And so the Southerners took a rule that had been introduced in 1917, um, actually for the purpose of ending filibusters. Um, it it's gave a supermajority of senators the ability to bring a filibuster to a close. Um, and they repurposed that rule. And through this lofty rhetoric, just like John Calhoun in declaring that they were interested in, in the right of the minority to free speech and all this stuff, they repurposed this rule into a supermajority threshold and the decisive fate for bills. They only used it for civil rights bills. Um, every once in a while, some other issue would, would wander into uh, uh, the teeth of a filibuster somehow, but on all other issues, those filibusters were quickly resolved and the issue was let go and it passed by a majority vote. The only bills where this new filibuster and the supermajority threshold was used to stop them and kill them altogether were civil rights bills. Um, and so over the course of this period, about a dozen civil rights bills that could have become law uh, were killed by this new strengthened filibuster that 
unlike the days of John Calhoun, where filibuster could only delay, this new filibuster could actually stop a bill from passing because it could impose this higher threshold for passage uh, and the bills failed to clear it. So that's an important point to keep in mind as we look at this and we talk about the origins of um, the filibuster because um, and and this origin of the idea of 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 protecting and and over empowering in some respects the minority um, because you know it, it it exists from the beginning of the republic through now uh, although the application has changed a little bit and right now you have a Republican Party a minority party representing primarily uh, less diverse red states that are trying to build up barriers to the inevitable, which is the demographic shift of the United States to being a minority majority country. Right. Um, and, uh, and so that's, you know, that, that, that informs this throughout the way, but, right. you know, the story has other elements to it. And one of the other elements to it is that the filibuster, as you describe it, was rarely used in the 1950s. There was about a one filibuster a year at some point in the 1990s, it started to accelerate and that then increased further still um, in the in the 21st century. Right. Um, something went haywire. What went haywire? Yeah, so this is a really interesting period because um, for, for sort of a, a couple of decades after 1964, the filibuster sort of became divorced from its white supremacist, segregationist uh, taint. Um, this was unexpected after the breaking of the 1964 filibuster and the Civil Rights Bill. Everybody, there was a wide expectation that this this tool is going to go, you know, to the dustbin of history. Um, but the opposite happened. And it was sort of for a weird confluence of reasons. Um, it, the Senate, the workload before the Senate was growing massively, the size of the government was growing rapidly. And so to sort of streamline con uh, management of the Senate floor, they just made the filibuster easier to use because it became in the leader's interest to say, listen, if you're going to use this thing, just let me know ahead of time so I won't bring the bill to the floor at all. Um, and explain, yeah. which you do well, how easy it is. Yeah, today you can send an email. I mean, literally to impose a filibuster, we've gone from the days of having to hold the floor, you know, and, and uh, stand for, you know, 13 hours straight to literally, not even yourself as a senator, but having your staff send an email to what's called the cloakroom, which is sort of the nerve center of each party on the Senate floor. Um, all you're doing with that email is basically declaring your intent to filibuster. And with that one email, the threshold on the bill goes from the simple majority where technically it still is today, all the way up to 60 votes. Um, you, you signal your intent to filibuster, and then the Senate as an institution then treats that bill as if it's being filibustered. And to break a filibuster, you need to clear that procedural hurdle that was put in place in 1917 of 60 votes. Um, so you've basically, you've streamlined this thing and you've actually increased its power uh, because it was hard to apply the filibuster. Part of the reason it was only applied to civil rights before was that it was hard to do. You need a lot of coordination, you need a lot of stamina, uh, and you need a lot of endurance to, to actually carry it out. And that disincentivized the use of it. You know, a, a, the maintenance of white supremacy was the only issue that provided enough motivation to actually carry out filibusters on a consistent basis. Uh, today, you, you don't need any real motivation. You just simply need, you know, the desire to, to throw a monkey wrench in the system. And so it was this streamlining of the filibuster that teed it up for Mitch McConnell to start using it against 
everything that the Senate did. And I want to be clear that both parties participated in this streamlining. A lot of it actually happened under um, Mike Mansfield, Democratic Senate leader, and Robert Byrd. But it wasn't with the intent of making it easier to use. You know, this is a classic case of unintended consequences. Um, they were trying to disincentivize its use and make it less powerful. Um, you know, by by they they reduced the threshold from two thirds to three fifths, thinking that this would make it less powerful. But actually, that made it easier for senators to use because they thought, oh, I'm not imposing as high an imposition on my colleagues, so I'll use it more often. Um, you know, I, I think a. a, a psychologists or sociologists could do a very interesting study on the unintended consequences here. But, you know, and then Democrats, uh, as it started to become used on many different issues, Democrats started using it on their preferred issues too. So it was this sort of transformative period between 1970 and, and 2000, where it became common to use it. It began being used on issues other than civil rights, and it became very easy to use. Um, but what's important about this period was that, you know, the partisan polarization that we see today had not yet set in on the country as a whole and certainly not on the Senate, which is one of the lagging um, indicators on partisan on polarization. Um, so it was sort of considered a benign tool during this period, which is why people like President Biden, who came of age during this period in the Senate, um, still sort of regarded as a useful tool for both sides to use, because for this brief period, it sort of did operate in that way, although there have been studies done that show it consistently still empowers, you know, um, uh, corporations and the status quo over over everybody else. Um, fast forward to today, now you have extreme polarization where one party is principally invested in protecting uh, the interests of a overwhelmingly white uh, reactionary conservative minority faction, numerical minority faction, and the other party has been, has, is principally interested in advancing the interests of this rising, diverse, more cosmopolitan majority. You know, we think of this as a standard thing, but this is relatively recent. As recently as the 90s, you had, you know, liberals in the Republican Party and conservatives in the Democratic Party. Um, and so you didn't have this kind of distinct polarization where the filibuster served one party's interest almost all the time over the other. So it's the confluence of polarization with the use, with the ease of use of the filibuster that creates the situation where we have today, where it can deploy with an email on every single bill that comes before the Senate, making that bill almost impossible to pass. And then that obstruction serves the interest overwhelmingly more of the Republican Party than of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, this is nobody's, this is, you know, when you ask about why are things the way they are in the Senate, people say it's the wisdom of the institution, but, you know, it wasn't meant to be this way. Nobody ever made a conscious decision to make it this way. This was the, the result of one layered decision after another that were focused on other issues um, that innovative people like Senator Mitch McConnell uh, came around and realized that they could take advantage of. Uh, and that's what happened. And that's that's why I think there's you know reason to change because um, this this wasn't the way it was meant to be. It was sort of backed into this terrible, terrible state of affairs. Now, before we get to what might happen, I just want to recap and say, you know, among the myths that you have uh, busted here, one is that, you know, institutionalists like the filibuster because it's always been around. It hasn't always been around in this form, uh, that it's a tool of compromise. It's not. It's really a tool of obstruction. Uh, and moreover, it's really been used as a tool of obstruction with a particularly nefarious set of goals. 
Um, and three, that it, you know, it performs some sort of useful democratic purpose. It actually doubles down on empowering the minority. Right now, the 50 Republican senators in the U.S. Senate represent 41 million fewer people than the 50 Democratic senators. Uh, and so uh, that, that those 41 million fewer people have uh, disproportionate representation to begin with. And then if the filibuster is working uh, to their benefit, they're getting this kind of veto power uh, because it's going to be very, very hard, even if you added a couple of states, to change the, 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 the ability of Republicans to block um, uh, the, the, the supermajority or to, to, to keep people from getting to this supermajority without their consent. So that leads us to where we are. Finally, there seems to be some growing consensus among uh, Democrats, at least, that we need to step away from this. Now, some people think we need to throw it away right away. Some people think uh, that's not realistic. We need to keep the option of being able to throw it away. Other people say, let's get rid of it with regard to some things now. Um, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and maybe we can get rid of it with regard to other things later. Cause that's kind of what happened with regard to, um, um, your former boss, Harry Reid and the, the nuclear option a, a while ago, where are we now in this debate? What is the conversation that took place between Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell? And more importantly, how likely is it that we're going to be able to move forward on this? particularly given that two Democratic senators, Senator Manchin and Senator uh, Sinema, have said no way. Right. Well, you know, this this episode between McConnell and, and Schumer over the organizing resolution, I think, accelerated the process of reform. Um, you know, I think Democrats you know, didn't didn't deploy the reform option as part of this debate. But, you know, reformers like me never expected this to be a conversation we were having in January. We thought, you know, with Biden, someone put it, you know, Biden being bipartisan curious, you know, there's always going to be a period of bipartisan curious experimentation at the beginning of this administration. Yeah, but like in take, college, that know, kind of experimentation never turns out okay, right? You know? Yeah, you know, well, it, it it's, hopefully will be a shorter period here. Um, yeah. We don't have years. And uh, I think that, um, you know, what what it did was, but McConnell picked a fight that, that he ended up having to give up on. And it it basically you know quickly accelerated the the idea that th this bipartisanship isn't ha isn't happening. If McConnell is going to threaten to filibuster the organizing resolution, which is the, the, the thing that sets the basic business of the Senate, who's on what committees, what their staffs are, what their budgets are, you know, if he's going to filibuster that, he's definitely going to filibuster you know everything else. So um, you know this is about changing fifty minds in the, the caucus who can be a very insular community, and you know. In that group or, dynamic, or, or fifty-two. Yeah, right. And and within that group dynamic, I think this this is like, okay, what are we doing here? Um, why why bother? So I think there'll still be a little bit of that. Um, in terms of mansion and, and cinema, I think that I you know I, I've read the same statements everybody else did. They're very almost Sherman-esque um, in their in their denials that they will ever do this. But I just think it's an untenable position because ultimately. You know, this isn't about Mansion and Cinema blocking the filibuster in order to block passage of you know far left priorities like Medicare for all. Um, what's going to become clear within a matter of months is that by by the leaving the filibuster in place, they are blocking the passage 
of middle of the road, common sense, pragmatic solutions that are supported by President Biden. Essentially, they are blocking the Biden agenda. And I think that's an untenable position for two Democratic senators to be in, even if they come from a conservative state like West Virginia. So, you know, they want to, Manchin and Cinema want to pursue some bipartisanship, see where it leads, great, go for it. But, you know, if late spring, early summer, um, the Biden agenda is getting blocked, uh, I think President Biden is going to have to come around to the conclusion that it's either give up on his agenda or reform the rules. And then I think you can have a conversation about incremental reform. Manchin and Cinema use terms like they're not going to eliminate the filibuster, they're not going to gut it. Um, but there are other incremental changes, I think, that, that can start to happen there. It's always a process. For Senator Reid, it took five years of Republican obstruction for him to come around to the idea. He was opposed to it originally. Um, I don't think we have five years. Uh, we don't have that kind of time here. Uh, I also think people's tolerance of for you know BS is a lot lower now than it was back then. Um, so hopefully this, we'll be talking months, not years here. Um, but it's always going to be a process. That's just a reality of, of reform. You know, this kind of change would be one of the biggest changes that's ever happened in the Senate history. Um, I would argue, as I do in the book, that this is a restoration. It's not a radical departure. It's trying to restore some of the good things about the Senate. Um, but it's a big change and it's going to take time to get there. But I, I just think, look, brass tacks politics here. At the end of the day, two Democratic senators can't stand in the way of the agenda of a Democratic president, especially when that president is a moderate like Biden. Um, it's it's not, you know, Manchin would love to sort of say, you know, I'm blocking the Medicare for all, I'm blocking the Green New Deal, but it's going to be blocking, you know, centrist, pragmatic priorities that his president wants to pass. And I don't think that's ultimately in the medium term, a tenable position. Yeah. Also, it is a big change, but it's a big change not from all of American history. It's a big change from the past 20 years. Right. The reality right. is that the first 200 years of American history, it wasn't really a feature. Right. Um, and, and, and you'd be surprised. I mean, you know, the, the level of the, the amount, senators are victims of newism themselves too, you know, and I think a lot of them think that this is the, the way the Senate is now is the way it was always meant to be. So I think there's gonna be an education process that goes on as well. But, but you're right, it's, it's, it's different from what they've experienced, but it's actually going back to what the Senate was meant to be. Right, and was. Um, uh, let me ask you one uh, last sort of set of questions, because the, the, the reform you talk about and focus on rightfully, I think, filibuster reform is, is crucially important. Uh, it's existentially important for the Republicans in some respects, because if, if you could actually pass uh, you know, the John Lewis voting rights, but if you could actually pass laws that guaranteed minorities, you know, equal access to voting. Um, uh, uh, if you could uh, make DC and Puerto Rico a state, uh, you know, not take a number of these steps, it's going to make it harder and harder for them to defend their position. Yes. It's understandable why they would oppose it. It's also essential. It's, it's also essential to, to get to those places for reasons of justice and, 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 and equity. But having said that, are there other steps that can be taken? I'll give you one example that comes up periodically. There was also sort of, you know, one of these things, you know, the earmarks were gotten rid of right. as, a, as a step to sort of make the process cleaner, you know, get rid of, get the pork out of the process. But earmarks had this thing, which was, you know, you're, if, if, if people were able to put earmarks and other things into bills, you could get somebody who wouldn't support a bill to support the bill. 
you know, it, they actually serve this, this, this process of, of building consensus and compromised uh, in, in a way that filibusters never did. Right. Are there things like that that ought to come back into the equation? Yeah, I'm actually a fan of earmarks. I, I think we should bring them back. My my old boss Harry Reid was was a, was a dedicated earmarker, and you know, he made his career on the things he was able to deliver for his for Nevada. Um, you know, look, they they help make the system work, and it's you know, look, the money gets spent. It's you know, we like to call them not earmarks, but congressionally directed spending. It's just a matter of who who decides where the money goes. Um, but but I think that that's right. It's it's funny, you know, the filibuster, Frank Capra, you know, it was based on a true story, uh, Mr. Smith, loosely, of Burton Wheeler, um, who uncovered corruption in the Pacific Northwest. And the funny thing about it was that he didn't use the filibuster in real life. Uh, he used committee investigations and hearings to uncover this corruption. But, you know, that wasn't dramatic enough. So Capra used the filibuster. But this sort of reveals the way that, you know, the things about the Senate that are supposed to be good, that are supposed to you know, facilitate compromise um, and and good things like investigations that uncover corruption are not the things that we think of when we think of the Senate. And the filibuster doesn't facilitate compromise. It, all it does is incentivize the party that's out of power to block the party in power, make it look bad so that they can ride that voter discontent back to gains um, in the next election. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I'm a fan of bringing back earmarks. Um, I also think that uh, we've We've developed these very top-down partisan leadership structures. Um, the Senate was not supposed to be a top-down place. Every senator was supposed to be somewhat equal in power. Um, so I think facilitating bipartisanship and compromise would be well served by returning power to individual senators and committee chairs, so that you know a senator who incentivizes you know working on a bill and finding a partner, uh, working across the aisle. If you can then bring that bill to the floor yourself and you don't have to go through leadership uh, and in all of the considerations that leadership uh, deter factors in when they're determining what to bring to the floor, which are usually political considerations. Um, so I think breaking down those leadership structures uh, would, would help uh, bipartisanship return. Uh, I actually think requiring senators to be on the floor for a certain amount of time before the Senate can adjourn um, would, would help, you know, Back in the day before these giant Senate office buildings, the senators just literally sat at their desks all day. And that's how they got to know each other. You know, we're probably never going to go back to the days where senators live in Washington. They're going to go, you know, back to their homes and back to their families. Um, but we can it, require them to sit on the floor together. Um, I think that is a productive exercise. I think that leads to, you know, getting to know each other. Um, it leads to extemporaneous debate. Uh, you're going to see actual debate break out instead of them just reading from a paper. Um, and I think can try to restore some of that that cooperation. So, you know, it's never, it's, it's ironic because, you know, people think of the Senate, they think it should facilitate bipartisanship, but it's not the things that are famous about the Senate that facilitate that. So things like bringing back earmarks, democratizing leadership, uh, requiring senators to actually spend time on the floor together, those are the kind of things I think that would help bring bring about those those good things about the Senate that used to exist. Well, I certainly hope somebody's listening to this, not just because, you know, what's the point of doing it if they're not, but also because I think you're talking a lot of sense. And uh, I think these are the kind of changes that are needed. Uh, it's good that people are having this conversation more broadly. I worry a bit that it it maybe will require some generational change among senators because, you know, when Susan Collins says this is the way it's always been, what she really means is this is the way it's always been in my career. Uh, and I think a new generation is going to come up that sees the Senate as dysfunctional um, yep. and will see some kind of uh, uh, benefit to 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 restoring that. 
I hope so. I hope they 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 read your book. I I hope it you know becomes kind of required reading for senators. I encourage everybody to go and get it. Kill switch: the rise of the modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy by Adam Gentleson. It's a great book. Um, and uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, for folks who are interested in everything else that we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. We've got our usual slate of multiple episodes each and every week. Uh, and at that site, you can also sign up and become a member and support what we're doing. So the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, and Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy by Adam Jenelson. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.